Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live, in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. Got a question for you, listener. Why are both progressives and conservatives growing more and more comfortable with trying to suppress uncomfortable speech these days? And what does that have to do with religious freedom? Here to help us sort through all of this is Bettina Krauss, editor of Liberty Magazine, which is the sponsor of this program. She joins us via Skype. Okay, Bettina, free speech for me, but not thee. What do we need to know? <laughs> exactly, Charles. And it's not a new phenomenon. I think if we look back in history, we can see that no one is comfortable with speech that makes them feel criticized, yes, yeah. that challenges their opinions, or that presents a point of view that somehow seems alien or dangerous. Yeah. I mean, we inherently, as humans, dislike uncomfortable speech. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just natural. But, you know, it, it amused me when I was reading through a history book recently to come across a story back in our nation's founding. And it was a, a story about President John Adams, mm -hmm. who, as you know, was our second president. The capital at the time was still in Philadelphia. And he decided to go to Massachusetts to his summer residence. So he headed off in his carriage with a big entourage, and he made his way through the towns north. And he came to Newark, New Jersey, and the people of the town greeted him with great ceremony. There was a 16 cannon salute and all sorts of festivities greeting the new president of the republic. But there was one individual, a laborer named Luther Baldwin, who was sitting in a nearby tavern with his friends, and he wasn't very impressed with all of this. And, <laughs> and he indeed made a rather loud joke at the expense of the president and caused quite a lot of mirth among his colleagues there at the tavern. Well, two months later, he found himself facing charges, federal charges of sedition. Uh -huh. Now, just just get your head around this, Charles, because this is seven years after the ratification of the First Amendment, which contains this sort of lofty affirmation of free speech and free expression, because this was a, a principle that the founders of our nation felt that it would distinguish us from the monarchical authoritarian countries of Europe where, you know, this was a new world where people would be free to speak their mind. And yet just seven years later, an individual could be brought before a judge and fined and sent to prison for making a joke about the president. <laughs> so, so what we're talking about here, uncomfortable speech, this is something that is deeply in ground within us to dislike and, and to want to suppress. And this, I think, this impulse is what we're seeing today as we're seeing more and more emphasis on trying to squash down anything that may rock our boat and make us feel uncomfortable. There is an inborn 
rebellion against people who don't agree with us. It seems to be that we just don't like it, whether they're talking about politics or their favorite kind of cat. (laughs) If someone does not agree with us, we just somehow get our tails in a knot and fight back. Right. Where did that come from? That's not right. We shouldn't be that way. Well, it may not be right, but it's a reality. Mm. I mean, there's been all sorts of sociological studies Mm. showing that when people face criticism, it triggers an emotional response rather than an intellectual engagement response. And, you know, you really don't need a sociologist to tell you that. All you need to do is spend some time on Twitter. Yes. Because (laughs) you you see someone throw out a verbal bomb into the Twitterverse and then you see the reactions come in because people do not like being criticized. They do not like differing points of view. It's just simply human nature. So what we need to do is get to the point in our own minds that it's okay for someone to say unokay things about us. I guess we'd have to look at the life of Christ, and he seemed to be pretty much okay with it. He didn't fight back. <laughs> How can we do that? What, what are we missing in our Christian experience that keeps us from learning that fact? Well, you know, it is, it's an issue of Christian experience, yes, but it's also um, an issue of American experience, mm, too, because mm. we have the First Amendment yeah. and its protection of free speech. We have this as an in-ground, deeply, deeply held value as Americans. Yeah, I mean, this, this defines us as, in many ways as a nation and distinguishes us from so many other countries around the world. There was a recent poll, actually, that asked Americans, how important do you think free speech is to our nation? And 99% said it was an extremely important value. So mm-hmm. so clearly there is an allegiance to this idea mm-hmm. of free speech. Mm-hmm. It is a cultural value and a legal value that we hold very closely. So I think where the problem is, where the rubber really meets the road, is when We start trying to get practical and we start trying to decide, well, where does free speech protections apply Mm -hmm. and what speech shouldn't receive (laughs) receive those protections? And so that's where we start seeing this progressive conservative split on the issue because we all agree we're unified in liking free speech, wanting free speech. We're immensely divided in what speech deserves protection. And so when they wrote this amendment, what speech were they talking about? Well, it was this concept of trying to distinguish our nation from monarchical regimes where speech was most certainly not free, where you had to toe the party line, so to speak, or receive punishment. The idea was to create a culture that would allow this sort of vigorous civil discourse that would allow good ideas to rise to the top and that would allow bad ideas to fall to the bottom, to be Mm -hmm. argued down. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you've heard the expression, the remedy to bad speech is more speech. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's the same idea that if someone throws out an idea, if it's good, it'll attract support. If it's bad, it'll be argued against. And so so that's sort of the macro argument for free speech. And what was in the minds, I believe, of the founders when they established this principle. The problem is, and you know this as well as I do, the the problem here is subjectivity. Because when you assess speech, 
you know, how do you assess speech? You have to assess it according to your own points of view, your own subjectivity, your own ideas of good and bad and right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, someone's legitimate opinion is someone else's misinformation and someone else's hate speech is someone else's deeply held religious belief. Oh, boy. Yeah. Right. So who is to judge where those lines should be drawn? Whose perspective determines that? And I guess what has been bothering me more and more of late is this sort of sense that there is a consensus growing among some areas of public life, in some areas of public life, that there are some ideas that should be censored. And, you know, there was even a poll recently where almost 50% of adult Americans who responded to the poll said that the government needs to step in to sort out misinformation online. (laughs) So, yes, we all want misinformation sorted out, but do we want the government to do that, which would be a direct violation of the First Amendment? I don't think so. But there is this growing sense that we should and we can censor speech. And we've seen this, for instance, there was a recent occurrence where a Georgetown law professor tweeted out his disapproval of President Biden's announcement that he was going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. He said, no, no, you shouldn't do that. You should consider all people regardless of race. Now, his tweet was offensive. I mean, I freely admit that. Yet the level of acrimony that came up that he roused was frankly amazing and he was placed on administrative leave. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the political spectrum, you have this movement against critical race theory and it being taught in schools. And, you know, 22 states at last count had introduced legislation to suppress critical race theory mm-hmm. in ways that go beyond the legitimate determining of curricula mm-hmm. And in ways that would actually suppress free speech generally. Now, that is concerning to me, not because I believe in either the the tweet of the Georgetown law professor or every tenant or argument of critical race theory, but because it's uncomfortable speech. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean we can censor it. Because censoring it is the first step toward undermining other civil liberties. You know, Bettina, as I always do and as you do, when we talk about these things, we reflect on Christ and and his life. I think one of the ways that Christ countered uncomfortable speech was with comfortable speech. He told 5,000 people on the hillside, blessed you are, you are blessed, you are valuable. Maybe that's one way that we can accept uncomfortable speech and our return should not be more uncomfortable speech, but more comfortable speech. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I really like that. And I hadn't really considered it in that way before, because I guess when I look at Christ, I focus on his uncomfortable speech. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Because when you look at the reactions of the Pharisees to what he was saying, he was saying things that made them profoundly uncomfortable to the point where they accused him of blasphemy. And it led to his crucifixion. So he was, in a way, an example of the fact that uncomfortable speech 
is part of the process, perhaps, of getting to the truth. Interesting, interesting. The uncomfortable speech that he gave was, in fact, we now know, truth. And so the people who do not believe in truth or support truth were uncomfortable with it. Can we make sure that we have truth on our side when we open our mouths and no matter what comes out at that point, we're okay? I think all our speech has to be accompanied, yes, by a search for truth and a wish to express yeah. truth, but more importantly, it needs to be accompanied by humility. There we go. There we because go. Yeah. without humility, our speech can become oppressive and we can become blind to other ideas and other ways of thinking. I think humility is a wonderful companion in all our interactions with other people. Oh, that is a perfect lesson. Spoken in love. That's the way we need to address people, address issues, address political parties. Spoken in love, in humility, as Bettina Krauss says to us today. That's beautiful. Bettina Krauss, editor of Liberty Magazine, thank you so much for sharing with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. This program is sponsored by Liberty Magazine. And listener, we have a website, libertymagazine.org. Here you'll find a lot of Maybe uncomfortable speech, but trust me, it's spoken in love. That's libertymagazine.org. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Bettina Krauss inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call 443-391-7258 or email us through our website at libertymagazine.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today. <laughs>